Take one, go. I love it. Yep. I'm loving it now. It's great. Hello. Sorry. Jonathan. I'm here. You're sounding quite a lot like Bugs Bunny, though, Alex. Is that a compliment? I'm an interpreter. I have no idea how it works. All I know is nine times out of ten, it works. What are our takes? I have no idea. An outtake is all all the times where we say the things we wish we could say during an episode. Welcome to Troublesome Terps, part of your recommended five servings of interpreting wit and thinking per day. For today's episode, we are really happy to have the three of us together again. And so we have the München Marvel, the Munich Marvel, Alexander Gansmeyer. How are you, Alexander? I'm great. How are you guys? It's a pleasure being back, just the three of us. Huh. It's, I just want to say home sweet home, but it's like... <laughs> I was going to say we're, we're bringing the band back together, but yeah. Anyway, hailing from sunny Scotland, we have Jonathan Downey, who apparently has a, a cold today. How are you feeling? A bit under the yes. weather, Jonathan? My the, the weather is lovely, but whatever weather it is, I'm under it at the moment. It's just the back end of uh, a cold that's making me sound a little bit like Barry White. So there we go. <laughs> Cue some uh, cheesy music right here again. I've heard people say that too much of anything is not good for you, baby. And... Uh, my name is Alexander Drexel, and today we are living up to our mission of dealing with uncomfortable subjects by tackling the phenomenon of remote interpreting. Again, I should add, because we've talked about remote interpreting before with Barry Olson, for example, but today it's just the three of us. And uh, to kick things off, we'll be using an article that Jonathan wrote uh, recently, uh, and he said that he basically wants to have none of it. What's What's the gist of the article what's your main argument jonathan fill us in um my, my point is that is not so much that i'm having none of it but that i made a strategic decision that it wouldn't be part of my business um i think it has its positives but the kind of work that i want to do is the kind of work where you're building longer term partnership where you're not just saying here are some words that you need in another language but i'm gonna take uh, an amount of ownership for the success of the event at which I'm interpreting. And my argument in the article was, I don't feel that I can do that if I'm interpreting from home or if I never see the client face to face or if I'm not at the event. I think that I've benefited so much from chatting to delegates over uh, coffee breaks and lunch times that I feel that I wouldn't be offering the service level that I want to offer if I'm not physically there. That's not to say that remote interpreting is a bad thing, but I think we do need to be very clear that remote interpreting is one thing, on-site interpreting is something else, and they're actually for two completely different purposes. Okay, I'm g- going to jump in straight away because um, there are people who are saying, well, remote, it's it's coming, it's a new, it's not even a new development, it's, it's here now, there are several platforms out there. But it does not necessarily mean that you're going to replace all of your interpreting with remote interpreting. But for you, it seems to be a very one or zero decision, a black and white decision in a way. So you don't see any potential for doing remote, at least not at the moment. Um, My point is for me that the market that I'm after and business people are very keen on specifying which market you're after, the market that I'm after um, one of the specifications is that there are people who want to partner with interpreters and don't just want to call us in, you know, to jobs where you just go and go there and come home and they don't really care. Um, I was aiming at clients who care who wanted partnership and I felt you can't really do that remotely. You can't really have the same relationship that you build up when you're seeing the clients at coffee break and at lunch break and I felt the quality of service I wanted to offer I couldn't actually offer remotely. Uh, Remote is great I think for kind of dropping in where it's needed but I think it actually disallows partnership because of the nature of the beast. It is great for you know emergency staff and this is dangerous or we only need you once ever but for we want to build up a long-term partnership and we want you to care as much about our business as we do, remote's never going to work there. But, you know, just to play devil's advocate, I'm not actually sure that a lot of clients are looking for that type of partnership that you mentioned. I've never had a client 
that came up to me and said, I want you to care about the business as much as we do. So while I get your point, I think the degree of involvement that you're taking for granted in the in you being on site or that you're aiming for, I'm not sure that happens a lot. I, I think this is the point is um, I'm actually would agree that it doesn't happen a lot. I think it builds up over a certain number of jobs. So when I go back to the Scottish government to do some work on fisheries policy, um, if when they see a team that they've seen before, it's a different level of work and a different kind of work that you get going. But on the other hand, I'm very much aware that most clients don't know what interpreters can do for them. Um, and so I had a, a really nice chat with a commercial manager of a magazine that's read by some of my target clients. And they were saying, you know, what the clients are really wanting is someone that they can trust to find the right people and to actually make sure that the event is delivered the way it needs to be delivered and get gets the results that they want. And I was fascinated to hear that and to hear um, the people who I'm aiming to try and persuade to become clients being told things like build up partnership with suppliers, see how you can add value and how they can add value to you. And I thought, well, they're now being taught you need to build up partnerships, you need to start working with the same team over and over. It makes sense then to say, okay, well, actually, that's where they're going. I want to go that direction and even be a step ahead saying to them, you know, the first job, we're just learning about each other, but you're going to start to see more and more value the more that you bring us into the same job. It sounds fascinating to me. Now, I wonder what it's like for you, Alexander. I know you, you're generally open to remote, but I'm, I'm wondering how much of it you're doing or uh, what, what your approach is to, to this. Before we, we jump more into this, I think it's important to differentiate between the different types of remote. We've done that, or we did that in the other podcast that we have with Barry. Um, I'm not opposed to remote in the broadest sense. So in the sense that I'm not in the same room as the speaker, absolutely not. But I am opposed to what they call RSI, so remote simultaneous interpreting, which would be the type of interpreting that you do mm. on Skype you know, the Skype interpreting, that kind of that kind of situation. That type I'm against. I've done quite a bit of interpreting um, remotely. And there was an article, I think it was from the ATA Interpreters Division, where they called it internal and external mm. um, cable. So the internal cable is basically you're in the same building, you're just in a different room and everything is kind of hardwired together. External cable is you're still somewhere else. So like you're, I don't know, in the headquarters of company XYZ, but you're still interpreting the CFO who just happens to be in Berlin or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's that's kind of external cable. Those two I've done quite mm -hmm. a bit and quite regularly, actually. And I've made both positive and negative experiences, although I have to say that the negative is truly only a, a couple of times. I could probably count them on one hand. Um, when things go really wrong, it's just, you know, you just kind mm. of have to laugh. Like, I, I remember one time we were doing a, a a camera stream that was fed back to us into the booth, and all of a sudden, one of the the one of the previous speakers just stepped in front of our webcam. So he was just standing in front of the webcam, and we just could see nothing. And we tried to get in touch with the technician on site, but he was on, he was out on a smoke break because everything had worked out, the, you know, before. So those kinds of things, when they just come together, like obviously that is less than ideal. But normally those kinds of things work very well for me. And what I find interesting in those situations is. In hindsight, I always I always forget while I'm on the job, but I always try to kind of think back and try to figure out for me if or how it was different from regular quote-unquote mm. interpreting jobs where you're really in the same room. So did it cause me more strain to concentrate? Did I have to compensate somehow? Did I get tired faster? Um, I think the general answer is you have to concentrate more. Mm. Simply because, you know, sometimes the, the internet connection, if it's external cable or, you know, just something goes wrong or you just have to chat with the technician, which already takes away from your capacities. So those kinds of things are a little bit more, um, well, more to deal with. But generally speaking, I, I quite like it. I don't like interpreting from home. I haven't done that. Um, 
I've been on a test run or two, and so far I haven't been impressed. But mm. I have another one lined up in just a couple of days, so we'll see how that goes. I think my dividing line would be uh, I've, I've had a couple of jobs where the room has been too small for a booth, so they've put the booth in another room and just linked it through. And I think so long as there is the possibility for some interaction with the clients, I'm quite happy. Um, this kind of external cable where you're at home or where you're in a completely different city, um, even the, the job where we were in a different room because he didn't have space, the one thing I did notice is that very quickly it was easy to become disconnected from what's going on. And personally, I find, especially with simultaneous, um, if you've got something like a workshop or a QA session or even a speaker delivering content that is more than just, you know, facts and figures, um, you're personal connection to what's going on makes a big difference i think so if you've got a speaker who's trying to persuade or who's really enthusiastic and there's like this barrier that's been erected between you because he's in a different he or she's in a different room or something um i think it's harder work to build up that same connection that you need on a lot of in a lot of simultaneous interpreting which is how do i get inside this speaker's head um from what I've seen about the remote interpreting tech side, everything's been on the how do we get the sound quality right? How do we get the image quality right? Missing the point that interpreting isn't, you know, I've probably said it a thousand times, that interpreting is a people skill that happens to involve language. Um, and the sound quality is an issue, but it's not the issue. The issue is do you feel still connected to what's going on and are you still able to follow the changes in atmosphere in the room that can be so important on some jobs? Fair point. Yeah. So what do you think about the, the extra gimmicks that are possible with remote interpreting? Um, because I think I read something about the EU doing this where you can kind of move the cameras around or the different screen setups. Because I personally, I was at an interpreting assignment where we did um, a, a CEO, a management board meeting. And Jonathan, to your point, we weren't actually not allowed to speak to any of the, the management because they were somewhere completely different. Nobody was in the room. Nobody was wow. even allowed close to them. Everybody had to hand off their cell phones one floor below the actual meeting level. So it was completely removed from everything, but everybody was completely removed. Mm. But we actually were in a room where we got to um, control the cameras within the meeting room. So we could always kind of figure out who was speaking and kind of adjust the camera, which sounds great in theory, but we didn't do that because it's just, you know, it's distracting and it's kind of, it's kind of strange. So I don't know. What do you guys think about that? There was also another article about um, virtual reality headsets. I think Anya Rutten wrote that, where you sit in the booth with a virtual reality headset and kind of a 360 camera installed at the, uh, at the, the, the venue that you're interpreting for. Just to get back to this one thing that, that you mentioned, where you had the, the chance to operate the camera yourselves. I think it's, that's probably right. I mean, I've never done it myself, but that's my impression of the situation is that it sounds great at first that you have complete control, but then again, you have this non-trivial task of interpreting. And I don't know how much capacity you have to, I don't know, adjust the camera or something. And then of course you could ask your booth mate to do it, but then again, you would somehow have to explain or, you know, show fingers or make gestures and, you know, can you turn the camera to the left, to the right, up or down or whatever. I, I yeah. imagine that to be very complicated. Yeah, and imagine you've kind of found the camera position that you're comfortable with, and then all of a sudden your booth mate thinks, oh, it's supposed to go a little further to the left, and then he just moves it. That might actually throw you off, you know, yeah. if, even if they just want to help. I think think this is the issue. I mean, there are obviously meetings where there's a need for secrecy. Um, there are meetings where, for instance, I, I've, I did a, an interpreting assignment where my mobile phone and my entire bag got taken off me and I had to have a conversation that it was actually a good idea to let me have a notepad and a pen. Um, but I think generally what what's happened with remote interpreting is the conversation has been... Um, basically taken over by either techie people who think, great, let's go with VR headsets, let's go with camera positions, and miss the point that interpreting is already cognitively stressful, so asking us to do another thing really isn't actually going to help that much. Or it's taken over by people who are quite afraid of new technology taking our jobs. Um, I think remote interpreting is great for some things, and it's you know it does some things really, really well. 
And for things like, you know, emergency situations, absolutely you should be doing remote interpreting. Um, but I think the my, my, my discomfort at the moment is I think we've been debating completely the wrong thing about remote interpreting. You know, is it stressful? Uh, can we change the camera? Really is beside the point. What the point is for me is, can we deliver the same level of interpreting remotely as we can as we can do if we're in the same room? And I think my answer to that is, I don't think so. But again, it depends on what you think interpreting is about. If it's purely about language, there's no reason why not. But if it's about, you know, we've all been in meetings where you have to read the room and the way you deal with what someone said depends on the atmosphere of the room and so on. We've all been in meetings like that. And I don't think you can do that level of interpreting that's so aware of what's going on if you're sitting at home in your pajamas um, interpreting with a cat on your lap. I don't think it can be done. And I think there's a flip side to the thing that you described earlier, because not only as an interpreter, can you not maybe do the things that you would like to do with your clients, you know, or tell them the things that you could only do the, uh, tell them in, in person. But I think on the flip side, it also takes us even more out of the situation. And also, I think, in consequence, out of the people's minds, so the people we are, we, we are working for. So they may not even see us the things uh, the way things are standing in, in classical um interpreting but if you're then even removed from the room um i think that that may lead to problems just like you know having an even lower awareness of the fact that the meeting is being interpreted and then you have to make some affordances for that so i could imagine that that also is a problem that that uh, happens with remote situations But can I just ask you something very quickly? Because I see in our show notes, we have a question as to how important access to the delegates is. And oftentimes it happens that this is literally one of the most frequent things that I do at the moment, is that we interpret not for people on site here in Munich, but we interpret for people who are joining via mm -hmm. web stream. So I'm in the same room as the guy that I interpret for, which is perfect. You know, it's great. I see everything. I can read the room. But my actual audience is sitting somewhere in, the, in America or in South Africa mm -hmm. or in the UK or wherever. So does that mean, and obviously I have no access to them. So yeah, this is, a, uh, this is purely a one-way street. So what do you guys make of that? Would you say that that is remote interpreting? Or how would you evaluate no. that in, in that scheme of things? Right, Alex, because for me, that's not remote no. interpreting either. Absolutely not. I think that's more what I think is commonly referred to as remote participation, where you have a, a rather normal or traditional setup of interpreting. That means you, you have an old meeting room, you have delegates in the room, you have booths with interpreters in them, and then you have either web streaming or you have, you know, maybe individual participants that just join the meeting, just listen from afar, or maybe that will ask a question or something. But that, to me, I think is not remote interpreting because the the interpreters are in the same room. Yeah, I, I think this comes down to my kind of guideline for when you should re use remote interpreting, and that is if the delegates are all in the same room, the interpreter should be there with them. If they're separate, that's a slightly different case. And there have been, I don't think I've done any, but I, I've come across meetings where people are dialing in and stuff. Um, and I think it's the, is the interpreter with someone involved in the meeting is a is a really clear question and i think the interesting thing is is that even though we're getting more and more meetings with people dialing in um i was looking up in the the global in-person meetings industry is still growing year on year and the global meetings travel is uh, due to double i think it was by 2040 um which tells us a lot about what's going on and i think there are amazing technological things that you can do in a meeting um, but I, I wouldn't call your case remote interpreting, but I would probably still want to have a discussion with the client, and maybe that's my view of what an interpreter could be, about the pros and cons of the setup that they've got. Um, and it could be that that meeting is, you know, it's, it's not movable, but to have the courage as an interpreter and a communication expert to say, well, let's talk about what you're trying to achieve in this meeting. And meeting event managers will do this all the time with clients. Okay, what are you trying to achieve? Let's look at the best way of achieving what you're trying to do. Um, and there are some cases where the automatic answer for them is, oh, they would just Skype in. But as a communications expert, we might say, well, this kind of meeting, 
you might want to consider whether it's worth the airfare because um, I, I, I certainly know that event managers have that discussion with clients quite regularly saying, yeah, I know it's expensive, but you really shouldn't be trying to do a business negotiation worth X million dollars over Skype. It kind of doesn't work. Um, maybe I'm, I'm dreaming too much about what interpreters could be, but there does seem, people do seem to want to have these conversations. Um, and there is this bigger issue of, you know, we are interpreters with some incredible expertise in intercultural communication and how to set up a meeting. We might want to have these discussions with clients and say, well, you know, this meeting, just do it over Skype. It's fine. Um, save them several thousand pounds a, a time. But yeah, I, I, I don't know what Alex's case would be called. But I, it is one of these cases where if I was a consultant on the job, I would be sending a little note to the client saying, interesting setup, you might want to consider this issue could arise. But Jonathan, since you mentioned um, event managers and event planners, I think you just attended the meeting show in London the other day. Were, yes. Was that an issue? Do, do people, event organizers, assistants, planners, do they talk about these things, having remote conferences, remote participation, um, that kind of thing? It's a massive trend in the industry that they're trying to deal with. Again, though, much like remote interpreting, and here is where I'll be probably getting in trouble, I think in their industry it has probably been overhyped. So at the meeting show, the busiest stands were not the techno technological stands. Um, there was one company offering massive online remote uh, remote participation in meetings. Their stand got a little bit of kind of walkthrough. But the busiest stands consistently every time I've been there have been the hotels. The venues always get rushed. And you think, okay, you have like the tech section, which gets a little bit of footfall. And you could say, you know, it's its location. But, you know, not far from it, the hotels are getting rushed with people all the time. No matter where the hotels are based, they're always busy. And it makes me think, you know, if something like 60% of the stands are hotels, um, and they're getting the vast majority of the footfall and their appointment list is always full. It tells me that all of the tech stuff that they're talking about in their industry is probably as overhyped as remote interpreting is for us. Um, and that people still want to be in the same room together. It was Barry Olsen on our show said, you know, virtual meetings will take over when we find a way to drink beer virtually. Uh, and that's how it works. Um, but I do think we need to find, we almost need to train specialist remote interpreters um, and have those who mostly do remote and those who mostly, the same way as we have conference medical court, we might want to have medical in person, medical, uh, medical remote, conference in person, conference remote or whatever, because it's going to be a different kind of interpreter that can make that work and can still have the same negotiating power when they're 500 miles from the client in their pajamas stroking a cat. <laughs> Don't know why that image is still in my head. I've probably been around too many translators. I kind of like the image. <laughs> um, I think what we also have in our show notes is a little bit of a differentiation between the different kinds of remote interpreting that exist. I don't know if you want to go through that um, or if it's worth it. And, and on the other hand, of course, there are, um, since you were speaking about hypes there, Jonathan, there's a lot of platforms out there right now. Um, and I think it's, I don't know if we want to name any any individual ones, but um, it certainly seems that th there are many participants in the market right now. And some are a little bit more specialized, though they're, they're trying to focus on one specific thing or use case, maybe. And others are like, well, we can provide anything up to 32 languages with, you know, dozens of interpreters uh, and what, what have you. We, we'll do it. Um, I don't know if we want to go a little bit into this sort of categories and differentiation. When it comes to the different platforms that are out there, um, you're right. There's a there's a huge gap in what each platform is trying to do, and a lot of the platforms are trying to do everything at the same time, every language, every specialty, literally everything. So it's just kind of a kitchen sink approach, which I don't think really works ever in any kind of industry because you always have to be really good at one thing in order to stand out and do well in the rest but you know you have to kind of stake out and if you just try to do everything it's just kind of muddled a little bit but um 
what is bothering me about the, the the different platforms that are out there is that I haven't seen one platform that had a really thought through business model because, and I know that we, I think we're probably going to link the article below, which is one of the articles from the Common Sense Advisory, which is, well, you can either agree or disagree with the article. So that's a, for, you know, everybody can decide for themselves. But I do think that they make one fair point in that um, you can have the best platform in the world. If you don't have any interpreters, you're not going to go anywhere. You can be the best interpreter in the world. If you can't deliver your service to a client, that's not going to do anything either. But most um, interpreting platform providers have struggled in getting that mix because oftentimes they make it sound like, oh, we have the greatest platform and you as the client can onboard your own team. So we're really doing you a favor. It's really great for you. But most of the clients don't want that because if they call me as an interpreter, they probably want me to organize the equipment, organize the team, kind of take care of everything. So if they go up to a provider, they're expecting them to provide with what they need. And um, Well, and some providers do that, but I think the question is whether we as interpreters want that because right. they don't always get it right, I think. Exactly. So no provider has cracked that code yet. And I think that is kind of, I might be going, getting overboard, so please feel free to rein me in. I think that's going straight into my point that I was trying to make probably sometime later in the podcast, that uh, everybody always compares remote interpreting to um, translation and Marie's a machine translation, but it's not the same. It's just not the same. And I'm just going to stop it right here and, and let you guys get in a word before we continue. I, I think what has been missing on all of the platforms so far is a serious engagement with any interpreting agency or a vast number of consultant interpreters. And the, the, the Achilles heel of every single interpreting platform so far is they haven't managed to convince the high-quality interpreters to use the platform. And they will not succeed sustainably until they can convince a cadre of high-quality, respected interpreters to back them. And we've seen uh, two or three respected interpreters and interpreter trainers either uh, take a job with the platform or help set one up, and that's great. And they are influencers. There's no getting away with the fact that we've had some interpreting influencers join platforms, and that's fantastic. And um, sometimes they're doing it really well. But on the other hand, um, the battle that the remote interpreting platforms are fighting is how do we get the good interpreters to join us? And frankly, the tone that has been adopted from some, but not all of the platforms so far, has been pushing the good interpreters away. I think there has been a failure to... Okay, I don't think anyone expected the amount of backlash against remote interpreting which has happened, and I think most of that backlash is unfair. But on the other hand, for instance, that Common Sense Advisory article which basically told interpreters, do what the remote interpreting people say or you won't have a job, that's not helpful. That's not how you create dialogue. Um, and I think I don't think people have really addressed the concerns of the profession, which are not simply about um, mental stress. They're about distance. They're about status. They're about prestige. They're about connection to clients. And no platform has, has said, you know what? We get it. Here's what we're going to do. And I think they're kidding themselves if they think that they're going to take a considerable share of the upper class interpreting market without that kind of engagement um, and I know I'm sounding highly critical but I remember chatting to Barry Olson about this and he and I both agreed that we've not ever had a mature discussion of remote interpreting and even the future of interpreting itself in the profession we've either had mudslinging or we've had ignoring people's concerns um, and I think the issue with remote interpreting is that let's admit, admit from the start it's not going to take over anytime soon Okay, once we've admitted that, let's also admit there are cases where remote interpreting is the best solution. And from then on, if we can admit that, we can have an, a mature discussion. If we start with this remote interpreting will take over nonsense, or if we start with the remote interpreting is evil nonsense, the discussion is dead and we may as well give up. Yeah, I think that's really the big challenge to, to get that balance right. And I agree with you to some extent, Jonathan, but um, there are a few platforms that... Um, 
have chosen a what I would call <laughs> diplomatically a problematic approach, uh, because some, as I as we mentioned earlier, say, well, we we can do it all. We'll take over the entire market. We'll dis disrupt uh, interpreting, and and some of them also try to act as agencies. So they will indeed try to you know just get together a bunch of interpreters that they can then sell together with the platform to the to the client, which may or may not work. Um, I think that the sort of pushback that you were referring to uh, was a conference earlier this year um, where one interpreter platform bravely <laughs> went in front of a lot of interpreters and interpreter trainers specifically and, and got quite a bit of, of pushback, some fair, maybe some less so. I think that's that's a, a debate that, that needs to be had. But I think, as you said, it's really important for us to get that balance right between not saying no to everything, but then on the other side, um, also trying to tell those providers that there are a few things that they need to get right in order to, you know, to be able to enter the market and have the interpreters on their side. But Alex, I think you, you wanted to say something as well. I did. Um, it's where to, where to begin. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that I would agree with Jonathan's, Jonathan's statement that some situations are best interpreted remotely just because I'm going off of a conference interpreting point of view. I'm sure there's dozens of, of fantastic cases in court, in medical um, environments, even in business negotiations if they're happening bilaterally. But I don't think there is any good case to be made for remote simultaneous interpreting from the comfort of my own office. I don't think there is a great scenario at the moment. I don't think the technology is out there. So that might just be me. I might just need to see the right technology in order for me to go, okay, that could technically work. But at the moment, there's just too many hurdles, too many too many hoops that I would have to jump through for me to be remotely <laughs> comfortable with that. But um, mm. the, the more pressing issue for me, though, and this is just something that the industry as a whole has to grapple with, is not about prestige. It's not about talking to the clients. It's about making enough money to support my livelihood. This is my bread and butter job. This is what I do to make a living. This is what I do to pay rent, to you know, contribute to pension funds, and so on and so forth. How can this become a sustainable business model? Because most of the times when you talk to platform providers, they're like, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to create so many new opportunities. You're going to be working all the time. And that is a lie. That won't happen. This is not going to be the magic trick that is going to make me a billionaire overnight. That's just not the truth. I get why they're saying it because obviously they have to hype their own platform. They have to create that buzz. So that makes complete sense. But it's a bit frustrating to hear that this is going to create so many new opportunities for all the conference interpreters out there. It's just not true. And even if it were, the remuneration models that a lot of these platform providers are putting out there are just, well, troublesome to stick with the name of our podcast. And I don't think that until this can be quite honestly discussed with the platform providers, and they're actually coming to the interpreters on equal footing, that we're really going to get anywhere in this discussion. I, I think the use cases that I was thinking of for remote interpreting were meetings where everyone is sitting at home or sitting separately anyway. So things like um, if you have a teleconference that's going on anyway, and that people are remotely, I think remote interpreting, obviously there, there's no place for the interpreter to be. Remote is fine. Place, um, interpreting in situations of conflict, I think for safety reasons, we should probably look at remote interpreting there. Um, basically, if the, the people in the meeting are in the same room, then I have no problem with the interpreter not being in the same room. If they're in the same room... That's like, fine, I, yeah. yeah. Sorry, just to interrupt you. That's yeah. totally fine, and I agree with you on that. The interpreter doesn't have to be in the same room, but I can agree with a remote interpreting situation, but not from my own space. I need to be somewhere where the client controls the environment because if something goes wrong, it's not going to be on me. It's going to be on the client. I mm. don't have to think about, is my Wi-Fi fast enough? Have I unplugged my doorbell? Mm. Is my dog barking? What's the, <laughs> what's the neighbor's baby doing? These are not factors that I, as an interpreter, want to be considering or want to mm. have to consider while I'm interpreting. So that's why even for some of these remote jobs that I have done, I always tell the client, I'm not going to do it from my house. They have asked me. I told them I'm not going to do it from my house. I'm not going to do it from my office. If you can provide a, a conference room in your 
headquarters mm. in your whatever, if you can provide an office or whatever it is, and you set up your systems, if you use your laptops, if you use your connection, I'm happy to do it, but it's on you. Well, and I think there's at least one tech startup that I think has understood this and is trying to get in this direction where they are setting up well, basically interpreting centers. And I know that there are some interpreters who absolutely dread the idea, but at least in, in terms of infrastructure quality, I think there are ways of doing that. And, and it could be something that the, the technology company sets up in terms of interpreting centers, having the proper infrastructure, microphones and, and stable internet connection and so on. It could also be possible that we'll see in the future co-working spaces that provide audio infrastructure or something like that so it's a solvable problem but i completely agree yeah. with you alex and that you say it's not something that we as interpreters necessarily want to add to our plate which is already quite full with mm. other stuff right I, I think i'm aware of how difficult the conversation has been with remote interpreting and i'm aware of all of the difficulties and i'm i'm very aware that as part of my business strategy i decided look it's a no from me um on the other hand there's always a danger, um, and in this I kind of agree with the interpreting de um, delivery platform people, that there's always a danger that if our first instinct is always to reject, then we will miss something. And I think there is a possibility that some interpreters will make their livelihood from remote interpreting as it grows, and it's going to grow, there's, there's no doubting that. Um, I think my issue is that having seen, if you get something like an interpreting centre, or if you have interpreters who are doing five meetings for five different clients a day, which let's face it, remote interpreting encourages that. It does not encourage you to be working for the same client time and time again. Um, my issue is, is that if you have interpreters doing five assignments for five clients a day, um, it's very difficult to negotiate for fair remuneration. And if you're having a, you know, a remote interpreting center like they have, for instance, with sign language interpreting and they have video relay, the sign language interpreters who do that have had to fight incredibly hard and are still fighting incredibly hard to not be treated like call center workers, which in effect they are. Um, and so the, this is the issue that um, there is a real need for remote interpreting. There are real opportunities, but we... The, the danger with remote interpreting, and again, the platform providers, I don't think have had this conversation with anyone, is that they're going to make interpreting into a commodity. And as soon as it becomes commodified, you're going to have price wars and you're going to have the things like where if you work in a call center, you know that your wage is not going to be fantastic. And you know that you're going to be having to meet targets which aren't necessarily um compatible with giving the highest quality service. I know that I worked in a call center as one of my first jobs. The targets were to do with numbers on a the sheet. They weren't to do with the good of the client. That's just how it goes. And if we, if remote interpreting continues down the path it's going, that is what their interpreters will be faced with. They will be on targets. They will be on goals. They will not be measured on how well did you interpret because we still don't know how to measure that. They won't be measured on results because no one will think to ask the client what the result was. And that's the issues that they haven't dealt with. Well, that's an entirely different kind of worms. Yeah, how do you judge interpreting quality? But what I wanted to get back to is is what you call the uh, commodifying interpreting, but maybe what we could also call the, the atomization of interpreting work, because that's that's definitely something that um, may come as inter uh, remote interpreting gains, gains traction. And I think that's that's it could be problematic um, because it it plays into things like preparation. We we need a certain amount of preparation, even for very easy jobs. You, you need at least a, a certain amount of time to pre to prepare. Um, and then there's stuff like travel. I mean, you, you may like travel, you may not like travel, but the fact is that travel time also is work time, is preparation time. So when you're going to an event, when you're going to an assignment, you're going to use travel time to prepare to go through your glossary, um, things like that. So there's a danger that as you get into this logic of targets and spreadsheets, um, how how can we ensure that we're still up to that quality that we should aspire to? Of course. And I think that whole commoditization of interpreting goes back to the point that I was kind of that I kind of hinted at earlier with the comparison between remote interpreting and translators using translation memories and and cat tools. And 
I just want to make the point again that it's not comparable. It's kind of like apples and oranges because if you're a translator and you're working with Trados or Memoq or whatever it is, yep. you actually get more work done per day. So you can increase your earning power by using these tools. Now, depending on the rates, depending on what you've actually negotiated with the clients and the repetitions and so on and so forth, of course, all those factors come into play. But as an interpreter who sits at home in his office at an interpreting center, uh, you're not going to be doing five meetings a day. That's just not going to happen. You're not going to be simultaneously interpreting five different meetings a day. And even if you were, you'd still have to prepare for all the five meetings. Otherwise, you'd probably be doing a really shit job at all five meetings if you just went in completely unprepared. So that whole calculation of, oh, you're, we're going to pay you less, you're not going to get a full day's rate, but you're going to do three to six meetings a day, that whole that whole thought just doesn't apply to our profession the way that it might theoretically to translation. And that's why I think that comparison, oh, interpreters are reacting exactly the same way that translators were. And now look how great they are. Look how how they have uh, prospered with the new technology. That just doesn't, it's just not the same. Well, and it's not entirely true uh, anyway for just yeah. applying it to translation. Exactly. Because when you start talking about, you know, CAD tools and translation memories and, and, and other tools, of course, you also need to talk about uh, declining pay because of fuzzy matches, different percentages. So, uh, exactly. yeah. <laughs> so I think that's a very strained analogy that people are trying to make. And I'm, I find it a bit irritating that that point gets made time and time again, because it's just not applicable to the situation. And even if it were, it wouldn't be a good thing. And I'm also not sure how it's helpful to the conversation. But yeah, go ahead, yeah. Jonathan. I do a little bit of translation, mostly for clients that I already have or for referrals. And sitting on the ITI board, we're watching a trend which seems to be repeated worldwide. And that is when I started in translation and interpreting. In translation, there was the premium market, which hardly anyone knew about when you graduated from university. There was the mid-market, which is where everyone aimed to begin with because, you know, the pay was decent, the clients were decent, you got treated well. And then there was the bulk or low-end market, which was basically just turn that out and people were getting paid two to three pence, maybe four pence a word. And the idea was just churn out as much as you can. And the clients didn't really care because they just needed it for the file anyway. Now, what I've seen in translation is precisely because of the rise of machine translation and translation memories, the middle market is disappearing fast. And the translators are having to either go, th go for the premium end and become experts, not just in translation, but in, in a specific field. So you get translators who are now also copywriters, translators who are technical experts in anything from concrete to manufacturing. And you also get translators who, I know one translator who created a custom machine translation system that when companies want 500,000 words that are going to be filed and not read, this guy runs them through his MT, does minimal checking and sends them back out and he's making a nice living off of it. Frankly, I think remote interpreting could easily do the same to interpreting. That the mid-market, which again is I think where most private market interpreters sit at the moment, is going to slowly disappear And interpreters will be faced with the choice of, in my case, I already felt the mid-market in the UK was becoming very unstable. So I, that's why I chose to become a consultant interpreter and try to build up stronger relationships with clients and get further on, you know, get uh, earlier on in the process of the meeting being run because I realized that that market will always be there. The market for the person they can rely on to get good quality every time, that will always exist. The mid-market for me seemed to be unstable and disappearing, and so I chose that's where I was going to go. I think the more interpreting grows, the more the mid-market interpreting is just not going to exist anymore, and you'll have the straight choice between do you go to the premium end and have some sort of specialism or add on some other set of skills, building teams or whatever, or do you go on the bulk market and do remote interpreting for five meetings a day without any prep? And I think that's where we've got this question, you know, where is the future of remote interpreting going? To me, I can't see it going anywhere else but this massive market split, which poses a whole lot of problems for the profession and for training and for what it means to be an interpreter. But I can't see it going anywhere else, to be honest. So here's a mean question. Does that mean that as interpreters, we need to learn to provide different levels of quality? <laughs> phone it in <laughs> pun intended um, that's a whole other can of worms <laughs> isn't it 
I think, though, actually, I would say rather than different levels of quality, I would say we need to be productizing our expertise more. And that's another buzzword. Basically, what productization means is you have expertise that you're applying to different jobs. So I have expertise in choosing AV suppliers or expertise in choosing an interpreting team or whatever. And what business people are now finding is that they can make extra money and sometimes passive income by turning their expertise into something that clients can use or buy. So you will have seen recently, uh, we'll put it in the show notes, I created a completely free um, template brief for clients that they could put their own logo in and put all the information the interpreters need in one A4 page. I'm now looking at creating courses on different aspects of working with interpreters or making sure your multilingual meeting is set up so that it works. And those will be sold at a, a small fee. And so rather than having different levels of quality, I'm saying, okay, you can book me to uh, build your interpreting team for you and it will be X amount of money. Or you can learn some of my expertise so that you can do some of that process yourself and call me in to do the actual interpreting. And that, I think, is going to be necessary for interpreters to think about what else do we know about, either that or to add extra skills to say to the clients, like, I tell you what, I'll organize for all of your promotional brochures to be translated as well. Um, I think we're either going to need extra skills or we'll need to productize the skills that we do have. Um, just because of the way the market's changing, and I think clients will trust someone more when they've seen, oh, hold on, they've got a course out on this and they've got a, a worksheet out on that. I think that's actually a good way of gaining new clients that we haven't really thought of before. I like it. That's definitely food for a thought, yeah. And yeah, my question was a bit nasty, I know, but I was just riffing off the example that you gave of that interpreter who was running text through his TM, just doing a little bit of post editing and then, you know, selling it off to the customer because it's good enough uh, because it's intended for filing and not intended to be read. So I was just wondering if um, th that may be a strategy that we have to learn as interpreters to provide different levels of quality. But of course, it's a very, uh, I guess it's a, a slippery slope because once you've gone down that path of differentiating quality, where does it lead you? I think that's a very a very dangerous path as well, maybe. But we're definitely yeah. going to solve that question today. <laughs> but, you know, just on that point, I don't differentiate in quality, but um, if you guys remember the, the example that I gave earlier where we did the, the remote uh, simultaneous interpreting, the client provided the setup, and then a guy stepped in front of the, the camera and we just couldn't see anything. And then they obviously were going into the financials, yada, yada, yada. So in those situations, I tell the client, well, this particular client, you know, after that, we told um, that we're going to do the best that we can as the technical environment allows it. If there are any issues, we're going to let them know as soon as possible. If we can iron them out ourselves, that's fine. If they can iron it out, even better. Uh, but if not, then it's going to be not the ideal interpretation because we either can't see properly or somebody is playing with a microphone or whatever it is. So those are just factors that I feel like in remote interpreting, you have to explain more, be much more explicit about it. And um, oftentimes the clients so far aren't very receptive because they say, oh, you know, it, it worked fine. It worked. So whatever. And I've, I've had this discussion with a colleague of mine because at the end of the day, you want to make it work. You as the interpreter don't want to be the cause for drama, for a headache for the client. So you give it your all, you concentrate even more, you try to be even better, you compensate the bad sound or the, the poor video quality even more because you want to make it work for the client because you're there, you're in the thick of it. What are you going to do? Just get up and leave. So you make it work. And then at the end of the day, the client says, well, I don't even know why you're complaining. It worked, didn't it? So it's kind of a catch-22. In those situations, I haven't figured out properly how to deal with that. But I try to be very, very precise with the clients in telling them why it worked, which is mostly us, and then what could have been made better for us to be even well, better at providing our service for the client, if that made any sense. I was, yeah. was a bit rambling, but that was a point that I felt I had to make, ramblingly. No, no, sure. Uh, I'm, I'm just wondering if we can try to distill a few takeaways from this, or maybe some 
a few bits of advice for the different parties involved. So maybe some advice for interpreters, some advice for the technology companies, some advice for the clients, maybe. I think that that would be useful because, as I said earlier, we're not going to solve this topic today if it's even solvable, solvable at all. But the idea is, I think, to just um, continue the conversation and, you know, get get ahead in the conversation as well. So I, I'm wondering if we can we can get a few takeaways. So I've noted down, for example, what I really loved is what you said at the beginning, Alex, that you um, wrote a bit of a log. So writing down your impressions, your experience, your levels of stress, a bit of self-observation, I think even when working in, in a remote scenario, I think that can be very useful for um, those of us who work in interpreting, in remote interpreting scenarios. And I think for those who are just, interested in, in remote i was i was wondering what can we tell people who you know have heard so much about remote interpreting now but who want to find out a bit more what what can we what kind of advice can we give them should they just get in touch with you know the uh, technology providers get them to set up a demo yeah, or something i think that's a good idea i think we as interpreters need to be proactive um we need to go out and be interested in the topic because you know, it is coming, it's here to stay, whatever we hear all the time. Those things are true. So I think that we need to be proactive. What I would say to the interpreters is be cautious. Don't, if you participate in a demo, obviously you're going to be asked for feedback. Give feedback, but give it wisely because at the end of the day, you're helping whichever provider it is to improve their platform and you don't know how that platform is going to work out. You don't know their business strategy. You don't know their business model. You don't know what they're going to do at the end of the day. They might say they only work with high quality interpreters. So you feel like you want to help them at the end of the day, they work for bargain prices, which is like five euros an hour or whatever. And you help them make their platform better. So I think be open, but be critical and be cautious. Yeah. And make sure that your honest feedback or your feedback in general isn't uh, being used as, you know, uh, an endorsement or uh, advertising, that kind of thing, because that can happen too. Yeah, absolutely. My thoughts to the platform providers are we know and you know that you need their support for your platforms to work. So please, when you meet opposition, don't always assume that we're just technological blockheads or we're trying to stand in the way of progress. Please, when we give you feedback, some of it we admit will be out of anger and out of the wrong place, but do listen to the real concerns that we have. And if you cannot sort something, if there is something that cannot be fixed, it's okay to say that. And it's okay to admit to that to us, we know this is not the same as being in the room. In fact, we would rather you admitted to us, this is not the same as being in the room. But let's have actual constructive dialogue. And please don't pretend you're going to completely upset the industry. We know and you know that is not going to happen. But we can, but we can do something together. And to interpreters, I would say, yes, make comment. Yes, it's right to be cautious, but please don't sound like you're just trying to destroy any whiff of change. Everyone knows the profession is going to change. Everyone can read the signs on the wall that the profession is undergoing change. Don't get angry at the people who are responsible for that change because if they didn't do it, someone else would. And so if you can see change coming, being creative and changing with it and looking at how you can change your business is far better for everyone and for the entire profession than just standing back and shouting. If we could end the shouting at each other and say, okay, remote interpreting people, you're going down that road. God bless you. Have fun. I'm going down this road and we'll see each other another day. That would be great, so long as we don't pretend that either remote interpreting is going to take over everything or that the profession is never going to change. Guess what? Interpreting has been changing for as long as it's been a profession. We just have to learn to make the best of the changes that are happening and find the clients who want the kind of interpreting that we're delivering. And that's what I would say to both. Find the people who are happy to take the, delivering, the interpreting you're delivering and just ignore the rest. It's, it's totally fine. And what about the 
clients or rather i think what do we t is there any advice that we can give interpreters who are approached by clients uh, clients saying well we've heard there is this you know tool that where you can stay at home and work from home wouldn't that be better than you don't have to travel and we have we don't have to pay all that money for the hotels and the travel i mean where are there any arguments that we can use as interpreters when clients approach us asking about remote technology I always tell the clients exactly what I told you guys in the podcast before that I'm not going to be working from home for reason A to Z. And then I list what if my computer breaks down, there's no one here to help. What if my internet is slow enough, is not fast enough? What if the mailman comes? What if this happens? I would rather do it in your office. That way I can contact you if there is an issue. That way you can contact me if there is an issue. And you know, everything is just much more controlled. And also, and this is actually objectively easier, if I'm on site, there is one less far-flung connection to worry about because I am in your premises. I am connected, not via Wi-Fi, not by anything. I'm there on site, somewhere on site, and I can reach you and you can reach me. And we basically just take one variable out of that equation, which makes it easier in an already very complex mm -hmm. situation. That's what I tell the clients. And so far, it's worked. So far, I've always been able to go to well, some room, some office, or whatever they set up. My answer to clients would actually be not to answer them, but to ask them a question. Um, and it would be to clients, I'm having a discussion with a client at the moment as to whether they should use simultaneous or consecutive. And, and I've told them, you know, the benefits of both. But my first thing to do is always to ask them the question, what are you expect what are you wanting to achieve from this meeting and depending on their answer you know if they said to me all we're wanting to achieve from this meeting is we want to have a quick high to make a connection with whoever then i would say okay let's talk through your options and rather and i would tell them which one is preferred but there are some cases where i would say to them look here are your options just letting you know if you choose remote interpreting, uh, I won't be the person providing it, but I'm happy to hook you up with a provider who could do a good job. Um, if, however, you're expecting to land a sale or you're expecting to do something else, here is um, the suite of solutions that I would offer. My preference would be this because of the reasons that Alex just gave, but I'll leave the decision up to you. And I would have that conversation on a very adult basis saying, what are you trying to achieve? What does a, a successful meeting look like? On the basis of that, here's what I think is the best solution. Here are your, your other options with the pros and cons of each. And so far, clients have been very mature at going, oh, we didn't realize there was an option. And when you give clients an option and your expert opinion, they will tend to either pick the one that you wanted them to anyway, or they will tend to say, very sorry, we don't have budget. And if they don't have budget, okay, fine. Um, I'm not going to argue with them, even though I know it's not going to fall apart. I had a client not so long ago saying, we don't have budget, we want to do it this way. And I just said, you know, if you want to do it that way, I'm happy to hook you up with someone who will do it that way, but I'm not happy. Uh, I don't believe I could deliver the right quality doing it that way. I'm very happy to refer you to someone. Thank you very much. And you come across some more professional doing that than shouting them down. Absolutely. Can I just add one last thing as a little vignette to this podcast? Because Jonathan was just saying that he's going to refer people. That's actually another point that I find quite difficult at the moment because who do you refer these jobs to? Lots of people don't want to take them. Lots of people might have, you know, no, it's it's, it's simply a fact of the matter. If you want to organize a team, if you can't take a job yourself, Colleagues are going to be much more hesitant. They might ask much steeper fees. They might, you know, want to have a larger team. So those are things that the clients aren't aware of, but that we are aware of that make this endeavor even more difficult at the moment. So I think this is just something else to keep in mind, just as a little vignette, as a side note. Yeah, fair point. Mm -hmm. So I hope that these takeaways were a good uh, thing to cap this episode. And as I said earlier, the, the point was not to give you the final uh, the final piece of the conversation or, or, or a solution or anything. I think the, the point was really to, you know, just recap a few things that, that have happened recently or that we've, we've been dealing with. So uh, I hope you, that you found the discussion interesting, that you found some of the takeaways useful, and maybe we can continue the conversation online. You know where to find us on social media. You can find us on 
Twitter. You can get in touch with us via email through our website. And uh, I have a feeling we'll be revisiting this topic in the near future. So uh, thanks again <laughs> for listening to us. The topic that keeps on giving. <laughs> it's the topic that keeps on giving. Exactly, exactly. So uh, that's been today's episode of Troublesome Terps. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Any interpreting that's viewed as purely linguistic will go remote. Any interpreting that sells itself as we make a difference will not go remote.